Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi, I'm Jo Evans and welcome to Cross Section and welcome to the final episode of this series and what a series it's been. We've had some fantastic guests, Ed Shaw, John Kirkby, Emma Scrivener, and we've seen in some fairly major political moments, the Windsor framework, the new government budget, the resignation of SNP leader Nicola Sturgeon. And we've tried to have some fun along the way. I think we can all agree playing news past the parcel for Cross Section's first birthday was a real highlight. If you missed any of these moments, you can catch up on all of them wherever you listen to your podcasts or by simply searching for Cross Section on the Evangelical Alliance website. Today, I'm joined by Peter and Alicia. Peter, I heard I missed you in the London office this week. Um, what, what were you doing in London? Well, yes, you did miss me. I was there for a very important meeting. And literally the moment I landed, I got an email to say said meeting was cancelled, which was the major reason I was in London. So that, that left me with a whole lovely day hanging out with my colleagues in the 176 office. And then I went to get the plane home and it was delayed by two hours. So I got home at half past 12 last night having got up at 5am. A lovely day. That's a very streamlined version, Mr. Linus. We like that. That's very professional. For those listeners who may have seen Peter in his kind of one minute video shoots on Twitter, he wasn't wearing his typical attire of a grey or black t-shirt. Our dear Peter Linus turned up looking very sharp straight out of banking and unfortunately it was saved for 176 rather than his lunch that he had that is that is a very very sad story <laughs> i feel the empathy flowing from you joe <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i'll get out the little violin towards the end of the episode maybe Right, let's get into news stories. Um, This has been quite a Scottish series, I'd say, but we are there once again, because as we said, big news stories have come out of Scotland this this term. This week, we had the new SNP leader announced. On Monday, it was announced that Hamza Youssef would be the new leader of the Scottish National Party. He's the first Asian and first Muslim leader of Scottish government. And since that announcement, Kate Forbes has resigned from Scottish Government. Alicia, it was a really tight leadership race. What do you think we should expect from Hamza Youssef? Yeah, it most definitely was a tight uh, race, 52 to 48, a lot closer than many expected, given um, how the media wanted to lean into Kate Forbes' kind of faith and how that would possibly play out in policy. I think. I think Hamza now needs to move into the detail of what his leadership's going to look like, particularly um, as he moves in as the main the main person coming out of somewhat the shadows of Nicola Sturgeon. And I think something in his acceptance speech showed that he is going to return and focus uh, more on kind of the state of affairs in Scotland. So he spoke about the need to confront and deal with the cost of living crisis. He spoke about the reforms that are needed in the NHS uh, and other public services uh, and the need for the economy to grow in Scotland. And I think 
maybe I'm over reading this, but there was a lot of criticism from both of the other candidates in terms of Ash Reagan and Kate Forbes in their assessment of SNP's kind of legacy on those key policy issues. So I definitely think that's the next step um, that Humza is going to have to confront in addressing long waiting times, addressing the challenge in Scotland of educational attainment in terms of crime. So that's my hope, but we shall see. As we've said, this series has been quite focused on a lot of the hot topics of gender recognition reform uh, and other, other issues like that. Both Kate Forbes and Ash Regan, the two candidates, polled just over 50% in the first round, and they were both opposed to the gender recognition reform. He's pressing ahead with that. He he doesn't even have the majority of his party based on that vote with him. And we know from polling, he doesn't have the majority of the country. So that's an interesting one. He's kind of doubling down on straight away. Uh, and that'll be challenging, I think. And religion has been a big talking point in this leadership race. As the results come out, what should we be taking away from that? Should Christians be discouraged? Obviously, Kate Forbes was very open about her faith and she she ultimately lost the leadership race. What, what do we take away from that? I'm certainly really encouraged. You've got two candidates who talked very clearly about their faith. Um, Kate Forbes led. Let's go there. So she was very clear about her beliefs. Um, she thought about it. She articulated it well. I think that's one of the learnings. Think about it. Be ready for this. She was ready for the conversation and she really didn't owned it did an incredible job um and but also her life matched her beliefs i think she was well known for these views but she was well known as somebody who was really personable she was really well respected uh, and i think that helped carry that conversation so people saw the match up in what she was saying um and, uh, and hamza has been also clear about his beliefs and he gathered his family to pray in butte house which is where the where he would now be living, uh, as I understand it, or in that in this sort of seat of Scottish government, and I saw some Christians being a bit snarky about that kind of thing. Oh, imagine if Kate Forbes had done that. I was like, well, hold on, religious freedom is religious freedom for everybody. I disagree with Hamza and his religion. I pray that he meets Jesus. Uh, so we're, we're fundamentally, but I absolutely respect his religious freedom, and I'm glad in that sense to see him worshiping there because I also want the freedom for somebody else to be able to do it. So I actually think the kind of religious freedom part has moved forward quite significantly. Ultimately, 90%, 95% of people voted for one of these two candidates, both of whom articulated clear religious beliefs. Yeah, and it's worth noting that when um, when Kate Forbes was originally asked about her, um, her religious beliefs at the start of the leadership race, all the headlines were basically suggesting that she would be out of the running. And as you said, she got 48% of the final count of votes, which, which shows that, that just wasn't the case, which is really hateful. And I think, I imagine there will be quite a few Christians who felt somewhat disappointed when that final um, vote was announced. But I think it's really, maybe an obvious thing to say, but really important to say, God, God knew that would happen. And even if it's not maybe what we would choose, you know, there's, there's something so exciting of the idea of having an evangelical Christian leading Scottish government but God this was God's plan this is not plan B for him I always think Kate is she set such a good example of being prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have that that verse from from 1 Peter that we quite often talk about not just being prepared in terms of attitude but she clearly had actually thought through how would I answer these questions in a gracious and articulate way if and when they come up, which I think is a really good challenge to us all to, to not just vaguely think about it, but but what would I actually say? 
And I think tactically and politically, if we can talk about that for a minute, I do think this is like following Alex Ferguson at Man United, like following Nicola Sturgeon, the SNP is a really difficult challenge. So in one sense, if I was her team, I, I wouldn't be too dismayed. I think to go from where Nicola Sturgeon was going to where Kate was wanting to take the part is incredibly difficult. I suspect there will be a time of challenge for Hamza. That's just my own sense. And actually, it might be a really politically, kind of tactically, good move for Kate to be waiting and, and come in later. She turned down a post. You said she resigned. I mean, what she did is a little ambiguous, but it does seem she was offered a very uh, low-level post, and uh, she decided that wasn't the thing for her. I think that gives her space to come back into the phrase. So she's far from out of it, and she has a lot of space to talk about who she is, set out her platform. So huge wins, as you've said. I totally agree there. And I think actually politically it could be even more interesting that she doesn't get it yet. I think this is a not yet rather than a hard no at this point. And I guess secondly to that, we're going to we're gonna touch on this later in the podcast, but racism is still very much a live issue in the UK. Um, Alyssa, do you think the fact that now two out of four of our government heads are not white is significant for the future of the UK? It's definitely been commented on uh, across media spectrums from right and left. Um, and it is a positive uh, direction in that sense. I guess I don't play or lean into the race. It's more the content and the substance of what's going to be coming out of Humza that I care more deeply about. And more in specifically his engagement with faith organisations, because again, in Scotland, part of the Kate Forbes campaign that brought concern, particularly from uh, the Green Party, was the sense that to be someone of faith and, and hold very orthodox views on social issues, that you are somehow not progressive enough uh, for the modern day and time. And I think Humza has to kind of confront that immediate challenge in his government in terms of how much will he engage with faith organisations that are incredibly active, particularly Christian organisations in Scotland that care about all the issues that he's talking about, cost of living, addiction recovery, health, education. Um, so I'm more concerned about his the substance of his leadership and policy direction. I did think it was interesting in his first speech after receiving um, leadership of the SNP he said this shows us that someone from any religion can be a leader of the SNP which which was interesting and looking across the UK I think there's both the uh, you've raised the question of ethnicity but also sex as in biological sex or gender you've got Rishi in in Westminster but you've had three uh, female prime ministers um, when you look at somewhere like America that hasn't had any any female presidents um, and a lot of other countries in the same, you know, Scotland, Hums is coming, for, following on from Nicola and the other two candidates were females in Northern Ireland, you Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill the last time, more or less, that we had a government. Um, Wales is perhaps the outlier here uh, on that. But actually, it raises lots of questions about where the kind of glass ceilings are and what's being shifted here in the UK. And I think a good question back to us as a church are we following on that or are we leading in the same way in terms of the spaces that we're opening for leadership uh, for people from a whole range of backgrounds? Yeah, that's a really good point. Coming in with our second story this week, artificial intelligence. Yesterday, an open letter from the Future of Life Institute called 
for development of artificial intelligence systems with human competitive intelligence to be halted for fear that they could pose profound risks to society and humanity. That's a scary headline. Twitter chief Elon Musk and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak has signed the letter. Um, Peter, give us a bit more of the background to this story. Well, you've got like more than a thousand, I think it is, AI experts saying we need to delay and we don't understand what the effects will be. We don't know if they're going to be positive and we don't know how to manage those impacts. You know, AI is already replacing large numbers of jobs. There was another piece of research out yesterday from one, I think it was Goldman Sachs, 300 million jobs are likely to go in the the next sort of timeline horizon around this. Um, So it's going to have a massive impact. But they're also saying as this uh, machine learning kind of progresses and moves forward, we can't control it. We don't know how it's making decisions. Um, even a small example yesterday, a teacher was at a listening to a podcast and she was saying about how it helps, it can do Pythagoras' theorem, but it gets it wrong in a particular way each time. But they don't understand why, because you can't go behind and understand the decision making in some of this AI. So sheer scale of it, the ethical decisions it makes, all these things are saying, hold on, there are questions, we need to slow down. And they're basically saying, everybody's running as hard as they can. Chat GPT is this obvious front end. I think a lot of us have used it. We've even tried writing papers, sermons, all sorts of things through it. And we can talk about that in a minute. But so that's got it in the public consciousness. And they're saying, if nobody slows this down by legislation, it'll just keep going like we've did with genetic research until somebody says, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I think they might be right to at least say we need to pause and ask some questions. Yeah, originally, I'm as as hip as I am, I'm actually quite slow when it comes to technology. So the the whole fuss about AI, I'm just like Elon Musk, Apple co-founder, you know, they're in their own world. Does it really matter? And interestingly, as I started researching it, uh, a close friend of mine who works in kind of business and fashion, um, he posted how Levi's, so the denim brand, is now looking to use and to test AI technology with a digital fashion company in order to increase diversity in their campaigns of clothing. Uh, and it's received quite mixed reactions, quite a strong backlash that Levi's would choose to potentially displace actual models from their kind of fashion campaigns as they come out this autumn and use computer generated images to show the range of their clothing line and how does it fit on certain uh, ethnic types, body types, etc. And there's a real question around, is that ethical? Is that right? Is that you as a brand really leaning into inclusion and diversity in a constructive way or are you using technology to displace and equally put models out of business so it is interesting questions at the moment in terms of the role of AI and how it's expanding in every area of society and whether it's right or not that feels like such an oxymoron doesn't it to improve our diversity and representation we're going to choose to not actually represent real people wow yeah that is terrifying um this chat oh i always to me it always just sounds like a list of random letters chat gdp chat gtp it is it's the it's the google (laughs) don't laugh at my dyslexia peter 
it's the it's the Google AI system thing. And as no, not Google. <laughs> Who's it who made AI. this? <laughs> I think it's OpenAI and Google are a rival to it. I think definitely okay. OpenAI. Okay. You, you can tell who's the most tech savvy of the three of us. But um, as Peter alluded to, I, I, was, I was writing an evangelistic talk. I was going to a, a CU events week and I was doing a talk on um, what, what, is the, what is the purpose of life, obviously coming from a Christian perspective. And um, with the help of a colleague, because as I said, I'm a bit of a tech, technophobe, we typed in the question into ja- um, chat GTP. <laughs> Uh, chat gtv and it what i found terrifying is the the talk that it came up with was actually half decent and did did help me break my writer's block somewhat i didn't use it that felt that felt slightly well done that would have been slightly wrong thank you thank you yeah it's terrifying to me but why would we not so we said this yesterday in in the office when i got stuck in london and another colleague was like Never, no way, that's awful. And then I said, but in five years, I have a suspicion that a decent amount of sermons are going to be produced, at least the raw content or the first round, the kind of research round by ChatGTP. And I'm kind of like going, so my gut reaction is like, it's like, well, a bad idea. Like, well, is it bad if it does some of the basic research for, for me, for example, and then I work out where am I going and what I want to land and what's the spirit saying? I'd like, I'm not sure it's much different than the basic process of going to look up the reference books and concordance books that I have. There's the question. We, uh, see, yeah. I was just having this very same question moments before our recording. And I said, I just don't trust the human instinct to, particularly in the context of preaching, where chat and its other initials uh, come forward with a full, expansive talk that is likely to be more efficient than your encyclopedia because it's going to pull in instantaneously messages and voices across the globe that has spoken into this space. I just don't trust the human to be like, you know what, I'm going to filter. This is purely research. I just don't trust it. I trust in. I just would sense that people would get lazy in their in their in their study, their devotion. I think when it comes to preaching and teaching, there's there is a work behind it beyond just research. There's a prayerful consideration uh, that needs to happen. So, and a discernment that takes place that this AI technology isn't skilled or equipped to do. Yeah, I. I mean, my instinct is very much to agree with you. As I said, I find all of this stuff scary. I think the pushback that you could have to that is that um, all all of us are going to be tempted to cut corners when it comes to teaching and preaching anyway. And the person who might choose not to filter from their chat GTP research they 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 could now just be you know stealing big chunks from other people's talks i don't i don't know if is the chat gtp the problem or is it just people are a problem so but but then so let's be clear one thing on the boundaries like i'm not saying all of it and if you put it all in and take all the illustrations we're dead in the water definitely i think that's a real problem but agreed i've got a range of commentary sitting behind me and i'm going to look them up when i'm preaching on something if I set a chat GTP to take me through some of that material and do some of the research and provide it for me, 
is like what is the difference between that and looking up in a commentary are we going to think in five years time that was weird that we had a moment or are we rightly saying hold on now it's it's going to push the boundaries i mean they're saying continual assessment coursework almost impossible to do because kids can go constantly and do this it's going to change research for us in public policy a whole chunk of what we do looking stuff up could be done by chat gpt but what we lobby on and the, then the, the way we advocate out of that i think is where the human element comes that's the refinement piece but i do think lots of the research could be done but i absolutely am not saying we take an entire wholesale sermon and deliver it just for total clarity though i think that will happen from some people and this is where the acknowledgement and this is where the ethical questions get super interesting what this can do is phenomenal but it has biases it has massive gaps it makes up references at the minute and it gets stuff wrong. So that's a big challenge because we, we want to do it from a particular theological angle. So I know what commentary I'm going to and I know other commentaries I probably wouldn't go to and I'm going to miss that with ChatGDP. So there's where the nuance comes. We, we covered a story, I think it was last season, about um, there was a robot preacher, like the preaching was done by a literal robot. Um so maybe as well as Levi's models, preachers and teachers might be out of jobs, which I think brings in an interesting economical question as well of I'm sure it's going to be argued that, well, it already is, that you can use AI to make jobs more efficient, uh, to, to have higher economic growth because, you know, you're not having to pay people to do those jobs. But do we want a society of maximum growth economically or where people are valued higher than that. Um, just, yeah, I think we're going to have to navigate that as, as time goes on. We, we put this question out on Twitter talking about this open letter and we asked, how do you feel about AI? A, excited, B, scared, or C, don't understand the fuss. So basically, Peter, Joe, or Alicia. And 64.7% of people said that they were scared. So turns out our listeners relate to me the most, guys. Well, we should be scared. And look, I'm going to throw in one other story. You'll tell me off as usual, but anyway, that's fine. I mean, in Utah, they have banned social media for, or they're proposing to do this ban for under 18s. And I think, again, the reason is this is to do with Facebook and Twitter and, and TikTok and things. But the reason for me why this is interesting, because AI drives these algorithms. And currently the battle is essentially between, in this case, a 16-year-old and the AI. The AI is going to win that. It's going to win against me, just for clarity. I'm not picking, but it's it's giving power back to parents. And I was saying, this social media stuff is so powerful because of the algorithms that drive it. We have got to protect our kids better. And that's, again, another place where the rubber hits the road for me. And I'm like, absolutely, we've got to do this. It's really easy when your plane's delayed to sit on social media and scroll through stuff because it's designed to addict you through stories that get me interested. And suddenly, instead of 10 minute break, I'm on half an hour because I'm stuck waiting for a plane. This stuff is good. And I think the move to ban, I'm not saying bans are the right thing straight away. But these are addictive and this is the attention economy. And the idea of at least saying we need to think about what we allow our kids access to, I think is a great conversation to be starting. Yeah, I, I, I'm quite behind that, I think. I have lost too many, too many chunks of my life to a real hole. That's not real as in reality. It's real as in the things that pop up on Instagram. If you don't know what that is, your, your life's probably better for it. Anyway, you can follow us on socials. Follow us on Twitter. <laughs> oh, that is so contradictory, isn't it? The irony. The irony, yeah. people. <laughs> I didn't even realise. I was just following my little script. 
Let's not do it this week. Don't do it this week. All right. I'm going to get in trouble with uh, our head of social media, but that's okay. Um, Peter, something funny happened yesterday. Um, Someone told me, they, they'd listened to a few of our of cross-section and they, they have a real picture of what you look like from your voice. Do you want to hear what that description was? I'm not oh, sure please, I do. Please, You're going to tell please. me. Um, five foot ten, broad, about 36, with a, with a full head of auburn hair. Wow. <laughs> it's not the um, most accurate picture, but I'll take it. This person's not been to the website. That's where you need to go. Well, that's my seamless transition. If you want to see what the hosts of Cross Section look like and see some of our other work, see some further reading, and even our listener survey, which has been going on for the last month or so, you can go to our Cross Section webpage, which will be linked in the episode description. Hi, Alicia. Hi, Joe. So in this world of hybrid working in which we are now in, I decided to work for my local coffee shop this morning. I went in, I ordered a caramel latte and I got to work. They got me thinking, what else could I get for the price of a coffee? Well, I'm glad that you asked, Joe. For £3 a month, you could become a member of the Evangelical Alliance and truly make a difference to reaching communities with the gospel and strengthening the evangelical voice in government and in policymaking. You'll receive a welcome pack on arrival, more valuable than a caramel latte, and access to our quarterly membership magazine idea on your doorstep. So to find out more, why not visit eauk.org forward slash join us ah brilliant to end the last episode of this season i thought we'd do a bit of a policy roundup we always try to stick to three stories in the in this show that is the general format which means that there are some stories that we never quite get around to or stories that haven't fully developed that we're keeping an eye on and seeing where they go seeing where the momentum takes them so as everyone goes away for their Easter break, I thought we'd essentially give our listeners some homework. These are the stories to keep an eye on um, to see how they develop that we may well be bringing on to cross-section in the months to come. I'll go first, seeing as we were touching on the issue of young people and social media and um, the dangerous world that we live in. In 2019, the Department of Education introduced a compulsory relationships and sex education framework. And ever since then, there's kind of been this rumbling on concern around what relationships and sex education is going to look like in our primary and secondary schools. It's been said that the framework given was loosely worded, basically not giving teachers a lot of guidance on where they should go with this. And some would say far too much free reign. Miriam Cates MP published a report criticising the framework as it is and giving some quite shocking stories of what children have experienced in their classroom and saying that kind of stuck in this wild west, as she calls it, teachers have gone to ideological and extreme groups for what to teach their kids. Alicia, where do you think this is going to go? What's How's the government responding to this Miriam Cates report? Great question. Well, I, I think first, firstly, I want to give um, 
kind of kudos to Miriam Cates as this has been a year long kind of engagement behind the scenes, engaging with schools and uh, other uh, groups, parents within her own constituency and more broadly. Um, And she has every opportunity at select committee as well as within the chamber spoken about um, the harm of pornography to children and equally how pornography is coming through um, the relationship and sex education through the kind of expansive um, nature of teaching children as young as eight uh, about um, explicit sexual content. So I just want to kind of give that as a start. In terms of what the government's going to do next, in theory, Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, has committed to reviewing it and to um, kind of coming back with stronger guidance. And simultaneously, at the same time, the Department for Education it has an open consultation uh, that has yet to be published, where they're inviting public organisations like the Evangelical Alliance, parents and others to talk about their concerns and equally to inform what the guidance should be around gender identity being taught in schools. So the next step is one of opportunity, an opportunity for engagement from uh, member organisations. And if you go on the website, you'll see that we've created a form for you to kind of feed into our submission on that. So that's a clear piece of homework for our listeners. Go on the website um, share your experience. I'll put that on the cross-section webpage this week. I think it's an interesting moment where Christian Christian parents have to really navigate what it means to be salt and light in a situation where it's it's not it's not the call on Christians to live insular lives and totally remove themselves from what's going on in the world around them. However, there's still the need to protect our children and what they hear and are exposed to. And how we walk that line, I think, is really challenging um, and something that we at the Evangelical Alliance have been thinking through carefully. We've got a resource out recently called Time to Talk, which is all about how parents can and should be involved in the conversations around relationships and sex with their children. So that's my story. I've gone. Alicia, why don't you go next? Mine is actually to talk about policing. So... um, Specifically, the Metropolitan Police Service, or the Met, if you're uh, a Londoner. Uh, The last week uh, has been a focal point as uh, Baroness Casey has finally published her review into policing standards, behaviour and internal culture. Uh, She was invited by the Metropolitan Police to do this review. She had access to staff across different um, kind of boroughs, as well as hierarchy in the organisation, access to reports and internal findings uh, that the Met Police were doing at the same time. And I guess 363 pages of a report can be distilled in this, where she concludes quite strongly that she finds uh, institutional racism, sexism and homophobia uh, within the Met. And it it incredibly makes for difficult reading, very hard to read. Uh, There are many case studies and testimonies that have been kind of put forward by different metropolitan police officers about their own experience of sexism, how they attend work and there's kind of casual conversation and banter about probation and being inducted and sex being a part of that. You've got situations where um, kind of policing around um, 
race within London. She makes a strong claim that uh, young black Londoners are over-policed and under-protected and the challenges of that. Uh, it's been a difficult um, two, three years for the Met Police in this regard, uh, all stemming, unfortunately, from the sad and tragic murder of Sarah Everard. So the reason I say this is a big news story that will linger on for the next 18 months is because in the short term, the Met Police are releasing their turnaround strategy. And that's centrally about how do they better engage and increase public confidence amongst women and girls and ethnic minority communities in London. Uh, And then looking further forward, next year is the mayoral elections in London. So it will definitely be a focal point uh, at campaign stage. And then whenever the next general election will be, um, both the Conservative and the Labour Party have already come out uh, with kind of sound bites around crime uh, and kind of law and order and the role that that plays. So this is definitely a huge focal piece um, going forward. And of course, just for some of our listeners, next month marks 30 years since Stephen Lawrence's uh, murder and since the whole review into the Met Police's engagement there and and the sense that institutional failings and racism was a huge part of the failures to conduct convictions and investigations. So it seems like the Met Police isn't really moving forward uh, in some of their core issues and many more is being exposed uh, going forward. So that leave me then with my last story. Uh, I was going to, I mean... I was going to say this and the terrorism threats being raised in Northern Ireland. But the reason for that is we're coming into 25 years from the Good Friday Agreement. And we don't have a government. There are huge problems for us locally. But actually, I love the Good Friday Agreement framing. And fundamentally, it was signed off Good Friday at Easter. And so in amongst lots of the stories that we talk about that can be definitely maybe feel a little bit more negative or depressing. Um, this is a moment where we're leaning into Easter. It is our last podcast before Easter. Joe, I hope I'm not stealing your wrap up. But I'm definitely going to lean that way and say, look, uh, yes, it's 25 years on. We're doing some events locally in Northern Ireland to to mark that moment. But the moment is the moment when the hope of the future comes into the present. This is the moment of the resurrection. This is what Easter is about. So in all the stories, my focus in this moment is I don't know how some of my non-Christian friends navigate these moments of kind of perpetual or permanent crises. I don't know how you do it without a relationship with Jesus. And I don't know how you do it with this, without a story to anchor us. And I'm so thankful in this moment as we do lean in towards Easter for the hope of the resurrection and what that means. And then it's the lived reality of that as we try and drop that in. David Smith, my colleague, has an article on hope and on the, the Good Friday Agreement. He's also the guy who wrote Time to Talk, a fantastic resource on the RSE that we were just talking about. But as we land, probably it's the hope that comes in Easter that I want to focus on and have a read of David's article. Couldn't have done it better myself, Peter. So that's it from us for this series. We will be back in a couple of weeks' time. I believe we're kicking off with an episode around Earth Day. We're joined by Less Waste Laura, Laurie Young. So that's really exciting to look forward to. And this is the very final call to fill in our listener survey. Thanks so much. See you then. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe Review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.